really fucking scary stories. I'm your host, Sam Goodman. Thank you for joining us. We are brought to you today by Pell Horse Media Co. Head over to www.pellhorsemedia.co for this podcast and more. You can find our merch store there. You can find books. You can find all kinds of great things over at pellhorsemedia.co. Man, oh man, we are back for season two. I hope that you enjoyed season one. If you have not tuned in, make sure you go back, give that a listen. We covered a lot of fun things. We went on an amazing haunted road trip, and I hope that season two delivers just as many spine-tingling chills and fucking scary stories as season one. Today, we are going to dive into a little bit of true crime. I thought, what better true crime case to jump into than the West Memphis Three? So there's a great series of documentaries on the West Memphis Three. If you go out and check those out, they're available on Hulu, a couple other places. There's several different ones. There was one that's produced by HBO that's a three-parter that I would encourage you to go watch because there's just no way that we can get into all the details of this case. I'm going to give you a really just kind of bite-sized overview, give you some of my thoughts, and we'll just go from there. But you should definitely check out those documentaries. They It's... it's it's just mind-blowing. It's just mind-blowing, and you'll be on the edge of your seat for the entire ride. All right, let's jump into a little bit of an overview of the story. So the West Memphis Three are three men that were convicted as teenagers in the 1994 of the 1993 murders of three boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. So Damian Eccles... Uh, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. and Jason Baldwin, all three, so spoiler alert, were convicted of brutally murdering and all kinds of other not-so-great things uh, to three young boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. And when I say not-so-great things, like, it, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. So these boys basically disappeared and they found them in a ditch on the side of the road behind a truck stop slash truck wash uh, in West Memphis, right? So they found these boys. Um, if you watch the documentaries, they show quite a bit of the crime scene, the crime scene photos, and it, it's not for the faint of heart. If it's not something that uh, that you're prepared for, uh, I would tell you a trigger warning because it, 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 it is pretty intense. But so these three guys, these three uh, teenagers were convicted of killing those boys. So on May 5th, 1993, there were three eight-year-old boys, Steve Branch, Michael Moore, Christopher Byers. They were reported missing in West Phoenix, West, West, I'm in Phoenix, if you can't tell, West Memphis, Arkansas. Um, the first report to police came from Byers' adoptive father, John Mark Byers, around 7 p.m. And the boys were allegedly last seen together by some neighbors. So in the affidavits, um, the neighbors said that they saw these boys playing around 6.30 p.m. Uh, they disappeared uh, and seeing Terry Hobbs, Steve Branch's death father, calling them to come home. So initial police searches were made that night. It was pretty limited. They didn't really look for the boys 
that hard. Um, friends and neighbors, you know, the community came together. They were they were searching for the boys, uh, and basically none of that was any luck. Uh, but then at some point, um, there was a cursory visit to the location where the bodies were later found, but, but they didn't find anything. So the more thorough police search started around 8 a.m. on May 6th, and it was led by the local Crittenden, I think that's how you pronounce it, Crittenden County uh, search and rescue personnel. They they did the whole search and rescue thing all over uh, all over West Memphis. They canvassed, they canvassed, they canvassed. They primarily focused on this Robin Hood Hills area where the boys were reported last seen by the neighbors. Um, around 1.45 p.m., so much, much later on in that day, juvenile parole, off- parole officer Steve Jones spotted a boy's black shoe floating in a muddy creek that led to uh, like a drainage canal in that, in that Robin Hood Hills area. And a subsequent search of that ditch revealed the bodies of the three boys. So they kind of backtracked from the shoe and they found the bodies. Um, the boys were not in great condition when they found them. They had been stripped naked. They were hogtied with their own shoelaces. Their ankles were tied to the wrists behind their backs. Um, the, the same with their left arms and legs. Uh, their clothing was found in the creek. Some of it was twisted around sticks and then pushed down into the muddy ditch. So if you're looking at this ditch, almost think like small creek. There's like water flowing through it, right? So you get down the water, it's probably like knee deep, maybe a little deeper water. So they're pushing the, the clothes down into the water, which is just just bizarre looking at it from the outside. Uh, again, I'll, I'll reference you back to some of the documentaries made on this if you want to get a closer look at it. Um, but the clothes were mostly turned inside out. Um, there was two pairs of the boys' underwear that was just never found, never recovered. Um, Christopher Byers had lacerations to various parts of his body, and there was mutilation um, to his nether region, so or his scrotum, his penis. Um, there was there was just just basically gone. Right. There was a lot, uh, um, a lot of, of mutilation and just multiple injuries all over the boys. The autopsies, uh, the forensic autopsies were done, and basically they just concluded that the boys died of multiple injuries. Um, and Moore and Branch, or excuse me, the, 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 the Byers boy died of multiple injuries. Moore and Branch died of multiple injuries with drowning. Um, seeing this scene, police initially sus- suspected that the boys had been raped. But later, you know, looking at this, later expert testimony disputed those findings. Um, Trace amounts of sperm DNA were found on pairs of pants from the scene. Um, The prosecution claims that Byers' wounds were a result of a knife attack and that he had been purposefully castrated and murdered. Defense experts claim that the injuries were most likely the result of animal predation. So post-mortem, the boys had been dumped uh, and they were, you know, dined upon by animals, which, you know, if you follow along with forensic stuff, if you take a look at stuff like this, that is not uncommon. You know, coyotes and other predators um, that, that just really kind of wander around and scavenge. Meat is uh, is meat, I guess. Uh, so they assumed, or the d- defense presented, that that was the case. One thing that you'll notice when you're when you're watching the documentaries or you start looking into the case is is in the the crime scene there is just an apparent lack of blood. You would just expect to find blood in these situations, and it's just not present. It's not present uh, on the ground. It's not present around the boys. It's not present anywhere. Is there's just an apparent 
lack of blood, and it's just kind of mind-boggling. Um, without jumping too far ahead, it leads one to believe that the boys were murdered somewhere else and then dumped in the ditch. That's just kind of the common sense answer, and the defense pr- presents that at different points throughout the trials as well. But let's let, let's go ahead and fast forward some. Um, but first, obviously, rest in peace to the victims, um, Steve Edward Branch, Christopher Mark Byers, James Michael Moore. Um, such a huge loss of life. You know, three eight-year-old boys just just starting life, not even, not even really started life yet, uh, to go through such a horrible, horrible thing. So originally, the, 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 the police are kind of just browsing around. They don't really have any good leads. And then they start to hone in on three suspects. And the only way to describe these three suspects, um, and they have a couple others, but these ones, uh, or these, these suspects are, are high on the list. They wear black. They're into heavy metal music. There's some allegations of maybe some satanic practices. And you have to kind of go back to this time, right? Um, you have to go back to the mid-90s. Right, we're in the middle of the satanic panic, which we're gonna look now and know that all that was kind of bullshit, right? It was just middle America scared, thinking that the Satanists were murdering everyone, and that's just never, there's no evidence of that. Let's just throw that out there, that it's just kind of hocus pocus bogus, right? But these guys fit the bill, they were scary. There was allegations of, of again, of Satanism, of Satanistic rituals. They wore, they all wore black, they had weird hair, they listened to Metallica. Um, side note on the documentaries is the entire at least with the hbo documentaries the entire documentary is is background music from metallica which is pretty pretty interesting but at the time of their arrest so they, they were arrested these suspects were arrested jesse miss kelly he was 17 years old jason baldwin was 16 year old and damian eccles was 18 years old baldwin and eccles had been previously arrested for vandalism shoplifting so let's just say like um basic kind of troublemaker teenage boy kind of stuff Right. Um, Eccles and Baldwin were close friends. They bonded over their similar tastes in music and fiction. Um, they shared distaste for the, the, the kind of the current cultural climate of West Memphis. They were in the Bible Belt. They just didn't fit in. It's like, you know, for me being like kind of like a weird outsider kid at different points in my life, you know, and most of us uh, have been in that position at some point. They were that, right? They were just the weird outsider kids. It's like, ooh, scary, different. And ooh, scary different when folks are looking for someone to blame for a murder is a, a prime target, right? Let's just say prime target. Um, Eccles' family was poor and received frequent visits from social services. He was rarely attended school. He had a girlfriend and had, had run off and later broken into a trailer. Um, they were arrested for that. Uh, only Eccles was charged with the burglary. He spent several months in a mental institution in Arkansas. He was, received full disability. I mean, this, this kind of whole list of stuff... Uh, was just kind of leading up to them being um, perfect, perfect, perfect suspects. Um, I'll say perfect suspects, despite the fact that there was really no evidence. Um, From what I've read, from what I've seen, from the documentaries, from the stuff that I've researched, you know, I'm I'm watching these trials, and you can just see in kind of jurors' eyes that they're just like, no, these guys did it. They just just knew. They, They just knew. Right. Um, without without any evidence. And I, I'm kind of putting myself in their position and I try to approach things as unbiased as I can. And I'm just looking at it going, there's no way that I could say well, beyond a reasonable doubt that these that these guys were guilty. Um, everything was circumstantial. Um, it was just just insane. Other than other than 
um, Miss Kelly, who let me let me throw this out there, um, had a very very low IQ. Like at the time that that he went to trial, I don't even know if he was capable of reading. Like it was just kind of sad. And the police, like his IQ was in like the the 70s. And the police basically coerced a confession out of them. They There was several hours of intense interrogation that was not recorded. And then all of a sudden the recorder comes on and he confesses. And then the recorder goes off, right? That's the only part that they really recorded. So they basically lock this guy up in a room and they go on and on and on and on and on. Um, and then eventually he goes, fine, I'll just tell you whatever you want to. Just leave me alone. And that's what he did. They kind of led him down. You can, you can listen to all this stuff on the internet. Um, they led him down this road and you can just follow along and see how he was kind of coaxed into saying different things like they started with a time saying that you know i was doing this you know at you know around noon and they're like you mean seven right seven p.m right no no around noon no you mean seven right and eventually they lead him into saying yeah i guess seven i guess that that works so miss kelly's trial so they had a, a, a guy there, um, Richard Offshay, an expert in false confessions and police coercion, um, professor of sociology from UC Ber- Berkeley, that testified on that brief recording as a classic example of police coercion. Um, critics have also, also stated that Ms. Kelly's various confessions were in many respects inconsistent with each other. So his confessions changed, and they didn't really align with the facts of what happened. So there was, there was that and there was really no other evidence other than that, right? There, there just wasn't. It was kind of like, here's this coerced confession. Here's a lot of experts that refute the coerced confession. But look at him. He wears black and listens to Metallica, and somebody said he's, that, we, that he's a Satanist. And boom, that's enough. Convicted, right? Convicted. Um, that was enough during the satanic panic during the mid-90s to convict this guy. So on February 5th, 1994, Ms. Kelly was convicted by a jury of one count of first-degree murder, two counts of secondary murder, and he was sentenced to life plus 40 years in prison. Echo, Echo, Eccles, there we go, Eccles and Baldwin were tried together. Three weeks later, they went on trial. The prosecution have, uh, accused the three young men of committing satanic murder. This is what the entire trial was hinged upon. The fact that these were Satanists and they wanted to eat children, basically. That, that was basically it. Um, Eccles had some different, different religious beliefs. He was wicked. Um, he had some other things that were unfortunately played against him, you know, in this situation in, in small town Arkansas or West Memphis, Arkansas. Um, so it, it kind of fed right into this theory of satanic murder. Um, the prosecution called this guy Dale W. Griffs, uh, which was hilarious, right? So this guy is an expert um, in, occult, in the occult to testify to murders uh, and to testify that they were a satanic ritual and that these boys fit the bill. And he basically is on the witness stand going, yes, satanic members were black. Yes, I would expect to see this. Yes, they sometimes, they sometimes paint their hair black and have black fingernails. And I'm sitting here going, well, fuck, I wear black t-shirts. Am I going to get convicted of murder? Well, you know what? In West Memphis, Arkansas in the mid-90s, probably, right? That, that's that's, that's kind of sort of what it seems like. Um, but the, the funniest part about this, this is why I kind of say that this is funny, um, is that this guy graduated from, he had his PhD from Columbia Pacific University, which is a unaccredited kind of degree mill where you kind of mail in and you get a degree. And the defense even questioned them. They're like, so how many classes did you take to obtain your master's degree from, from Columbia Pacific University? And he goes, I, what, what, what do you mean? And the defense, how many classes did you have to take to obtain it? And he kind of stops for a second. He goes, um, uh, none. 
Oh, okay, so none. So you didn't actually take any classes. You just kind of send them a check and get your master's. I, I took no classes. Uh, what about to get your PhD from Columbia Pacific University? Uh, how many classes did, did you take? Um, n- none. So besides that, just, just circus of insanity, they just allowed that guy to go up there and just be like, no, no, these boys are in the cult. Take it from me, right? T- take it, take it on, uh, on my good authority um, from Columbia Pacific University that these boys are from hell. They are, they are the devil. So on March 19th, Echoes and Baldwin were found guilty of three counts of murder. The court sentenced Damien Echoes to death and Baldwin to life in prison. At trial, the defense team argued that the news articles from the time could have been a source for Eccles' knowledge about the genital mutilation. Eccles said his knowledge was limited to what was on TV. Um, the prosecution claimed that Eccles' knowledge was, was nonetheless too close to the facts. So they, they, really kind of, they really kind of took this and just pushed this through and convicted these guys. I mean, I would encourage you, again, I can't say this enough to go kind of dig in and, and watch the documentaries. They're a great source. There's a lot of stuff on the internet about it. But there was just this glaring lack of evidence. And so there's this, this like big missing, missing pile of evidence. But they looked right. They smelled right. And by God, I think they worship the devil. So, boom, there you go. Uh, life plus 40 for one, life for another one, and death for Damian Eccles. There was a lot of criticism of the investigation, and due to this criticism, there was tons and tons and tons of kind of outpouring of support. There was a lot of protesters. There was, there was the, the HBO documentaries, Paradise Lost, uh, Paradise Lost 2, um, kind of going on and on and on. There, there was just lots, lots of public outcry from musicians and all kinds of the celeb crowd and just normal people going, this is kind of bullshit, right? This is kind of bullshit. And then they started to find all this evidence that, that the West Memphis police that just kind of missed, right? There was a bite mark on one of the victims that they just didn't notice somehow. Oh, they didn't notice the bite mark, um, which seems like that would be kind of numero uno to like kind of go over the body and look for stuff, right? Um, there was a John Mark Byers knife um, that he gave to one of the documentary filmmakers that was serrated. So there was this kind of whole notion that there were scrape marks on the victims that came from a serrated knife. Um, there was, you know, more evidence around the teeth imprints. Um, there was some folks kind of changed, changed their stories. Uh, but the kind of bombshell was this. DNA testing. There was DNA evidence and new physical evidence. So in 2007, DNA that was collected from the crime scene was finally tested. So out of all those boys, out of those three, those three young men that were convicted, they did not find any match for their DNA. There was no match, right? So they found a hair that was not inconsistent with, which means that there's a high probability that it belonged to him of Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs. And the more interesting part is where they found it. They found it tied into the knots of one of the uh, shoestrings that was used to bind the victim. Now, for sure, you might have, and so what discredits this a little bit is you have to kind of stick with that notion it's not inconsistent with, which means it's not like one out of a bazillion. It's like one out of maybe a million, right? So there's still a pretty good chance. But the fact that there could have been this transfer, right, of that hair, he, it is his stepfather. He does live in that house. The hair could have been wound around the shoestring. There, there's all kinds of other ways it could have ended up there. But the fact that it was tied into the knot is, is pretty interesting, right? And it's pretty interesting that they did not use that or, or, or produce that during the original trial. So with this new evidence, you know, the, 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 the three are constantly trying to seek a pill, and they're constantly getting shut down, constantly getting shut down, constantly getting shut down. 
This goes all the way to the Arkansas Supreme Court, right? That's that's kind of where things start to change because they're going, again, uh, appeal, 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 denied, 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 denied. They wanted the, – the state had – a, they did not want to get egg on their face, right? They they wanted to make sure that this these convictions stuck. They had their Satanists, and they wanted to make sure their Satanists stayed in jail, and they didn't want egg on their face for them getting out. But with this overwhelming evidence, this overwhelming uh, this overwhelming outcry of support from the general public, from other law enforcement agencies, from celebrities, from everyone, and with that new evidence, and now there is around 2008, there's all this kind of these allegations of, of jury misconduct coming to light, right? Where basically the, the the one of the jurors that ended up being the juror foreman basically said that he wanted to convict these people before he even went to trial. He was already for sure that he's seen that as his God-given as his God-given task to go forth and send these Satanists to jail. So there was a request for retrial in 2007-2010. Um, they filed the papers. Eccles defense lawyers seeking a retrial and immediate release from prison. They cited all this evidence. They cited the stuff with jury misconduct. They talked about the new statements from from other witnesses. Um, they. They used expert testimony around the knife marks and the injuries to the to the buyer's boy's genitals um, that, that that came from knife from from knife from animal predation. And when you look at the pictures, you can just look at it. It looks like um, I'm kind of a hillbilly. It looks like a coyote kind of digging at something. Right. You don't really see it and go, oh, that's a serrated blade where they just kind of scraped it down someone's body. So with all of this, um, all of this new evidence um, presented, denied, <laughs> still denied. The same judge, Judge David Burnett, denied the request for retrial, retrial, and he cited the DNA test inconclusive. So this is when it finally went to the Supreme Court. They heard oral arguments for the case in 2010. Their ruling, um, the Arkansas Supreme Court ordered a lower judge to consider whether newly analyzing it might exonerate the three. The justice, all, the justices also instructed the lower court to examine claims of misconduct by the jurors. Uh, and so they, they basically, this was, this is one of their last stops, if not their last stop. And the Arkansas Supreme Court kind of came through in a pinch. So this is where it gets kind of wacky. This is where it gets, um, it, it really, it really gets you to that point to where you go, justice doesn't fucking exist, right? When you start, when you start looking at this. So after weeks of negotiation, uh, in 2011, they were released from prison as part of a plea deal. So due to the Arkansas Supreme Court, um, the three entered into unusual Alfred plea deals. So this Alfred plea is a legal mechanism that allows people to plead guilty while asserting that they're innocent. But they're, they're basically pleading guilty because they see no other way out, right? You got Damien Eccles, which is facing death. So in all likelihood, they could have taken this to trial. Because they, they, were, they were going to get granted a retrial at this point if they pushed forward. They could take this to trial and, and probably like 80% chance get acquitted. But you're gambling with Damian Eccles' life at this point, right? And the state basically presents this deal going, well, if you all plead guilty, we'll, we'll say all is well and we'll let you out of prison. And that's that, rather than going to retrial. So under the deal... Judge David Lasser vacated the previous convictions, including capital murder. He ordered uh, and he ordered a new trial. 
Each man then entered an Alfred plea for the lesser charge of first and second degree murder while verbally stating their innocence. So to have to stand there and go, nope, I'm guilty, but I, or I, excuse me, I, I'm, I, I'm innocent, but I'm entering a plea of guilty because it is within my best interest to not die and be released from jail. So that's where I'm kind of going, what, what the fuck? What the fuck? Right. Uh, but that, that's what happens. That's what happens. So it was still a win, though. Right. It's still a win. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, these folks had been imprisoned for a total of 18 years and 78 days for a crime, which technically they pled guilty to, but that, that, that they that they pretty much didn't do. Right. That there's a there's a, like a 99 percent chance that they did not do it. At least the evidence never supported. it. Let's just say that these with, without even talking about guilt. Let's let's just say that that these Three young men spent 18 years, 78 days in an Arkansas penitentiary for a case that had zero evidence simply because they looked different, they acted different, and they liked heavy metal music. That's really what the entire case hinged upon. They're Satanists because they dress in black, they dye their hair black, they have black fingernails, and I saw one wearing a Metallica t-shirt one time. How insane. How absolutely insane. Now, I think the saddest part, and I haven't really followed up, so probably shame on me a little bit um, on some of these things, but the saddest part is that the state, with those, with those guilty pleas, those Alfred pleas, just kind of said, well, yeah, they did it, and we're just not going to dig in any further. How, what, what, just, right, insane. What a miscarriage of justice to not only have three folks stand there and basically plead guilty while declaring their innocence, but also to abandon seeking any true justice for the victims of this case. Now, with the Alfred pleas, what's really unfortunate about that is then these guys can't really turn around and sue the, the court system. Like They can't turn around and sue the state of Arkansas because they pled guilty. Right. So it was really a big old CYA, a big old cover your own ass for the state of Arkansas to go, okay, we're going to be out hundreds of millions of dollars for wrongful convictions if this goes back to trial. And there's a really there's a huge chance that it's going to go to trial and there's a really huge chance that they shall be found uh, innocent or acquitted. Um, So let's just do the Alfred plea thing. It's two birds, one stone. Right. We can uh, we can get our guilty pleas. We can we can not say that we were wrong in any way. We can say that we still believe fully that these fellows did this and we can protect ourselves from lawsuits right and that's kind of where it stopped so again i think what's 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 the saddest for me is that um you you have three folks six let's say six you have six folks right that three of them were murdered and will never see true justice Right. Because the state refuses. And I I won't say they'll never see true justice. There is a lot of folks out there that continue to try to find the truth around this case. But you have three folks that the state of Arkansas refuses to seek justice for. Right. Just because they don't want to admit that they that they kind of screwed the pooch. So you've got three young boys that did not get to have a life that they deserve. Someone stole that from them. On top of that, those three boys, those crimes continue to truly go unsolved. So there's not even any true justice for them or for their loved ones, their families. You have three other boys, which were boys. Let's just say that, right? 17, 17, 18. You know, 18 was the oldest. Damien Eccles was 18. That lost 18 years and 78 days of their lives simply because 
They dressed different, they looked different, and they listened to heavy metal music. I looked different when I was their age. I wore Metallica t-shirts. I still do. I'm in my 30s. I still wear Metallica t-shirts. <laughs> I still listen to Metallica. I, I, I think back to being that age and having black fingernails, wearing, you know, some like spiky bracelets and chains and dyeing my hair black. Like I did all the same stuff, maybe not the breaking and entering, maybe not some of the other kind of trouble that they got into, or at least I didn't get caught, right? <laughs> but I'm going, that could have been me. That could have been someone else, right? Similar to me. That could have been one of my friends. I grew up in a small rural town just like that. If you were different, you're bad. Different is bad. And ultimately, that's what convicted these three. They were different. To us, we view different as a good thing, right? And fortunately, in, in most of today's society, we view different and special and unique as, as a good thing. But during the satanic panic, being different was really fucking scary. Being different would cost you 18 years and 78 days of your life. Have you had a really fucking scary experience? Have you seen a ghost? Have you been on a macabre adventure? Would you like to share it on air? Would you like for us to tell that story? Or you just have something horrid that you would like for us to talk about? Head over to PellHorseMediaCo.com. Use the contact form to let us know all about it. Make sure that you subscribe. New episodes come out every single Friday. We look forward to continuing this creepy, crawly, morbid, macabre, and grotesque adventure with you, the listener. We love you and we will see you soon. Thank you for joining us today on our trip into the dark. We hope that you join us again next week for all things horror, all things macabre, all things grotesque, here on Really Fucking Scary Stories.
brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Are you looking to grow your business and stay resilient? Look no further than FM Global. With over 180 years of scientific research and engineering expertise, we bring innovative solutions to ensure your commercial property today so you can prosper tomorrow. 